This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. The congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis, who at age 25 marched in Selma, Alabama, and was beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, was a visionary and a man of deep faith. A believer in the injunction that one should love one's neighbor as oneself, Lewis was arguably a saint in our time, risking limb and life to bear witness for the powerless in the face of the powerful. In many ways, he brought a still-evolving nation closer to realizing its ideals, and his story offers inspiration and illumination for Americans today who are working for social and political change. Indeed, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham calls Lewis, quote, as important to the founding of a modern and multi-ethnic 20th and 21st century America as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and Samuel Adams were to the initial creation of the Republic itself in the 18th century. John Meacham got to know John Lewis personally over nearly three decades, and now he writes about his friend who passed away just this July in his new book titled His Truth is Marching On. John Lewis and the Power of Hope. And today, John Meacham joins me on the podcast to discuss his first of many encounters with the late Congressman Lewis and his final conversation with him at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests just weeks before Lewis succumbed to pancreatic cancer. He recounts the now famous story of a young John Lewis preaching to his family's chickens, what Meacham describes as an almost biblical arc to his life, and how Lewis's deep Christian faith informed his activism. He recalls the horrible day in Selma, Alabama, known as Bloody Sunday, how Lewis remained steadfast and completely at peace even as state troopers beat him within an inch of his life on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and how the civil rights leader continued to preach the power of nonviolent protest in the wake of recent attacks on black Americans and right up until the very end. John also discusses why he wanted his book about Lewis to hit the shelves before the 2020 election, what inspired him to endorse a presidential candidate for the first time in his life, and what it was like to participate in a Democratic National Convention that was unconventional. Coming up with historian John Meacham in just a moment. John Meacham is a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, a contributing writer to the New York Times Book Review, and a contributing editor of Time Magazine. John Meacham is the author of the New York Times bestsellers The Hope of Glory, Destiny and Power, The American Odyssey of George Herbert Walker Bush, Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, American Lion, Andrew Jackson in the White House, American Gospel, and Franklin and Winston. And now he's out with his latest book, a moving tribute to one of America's greatest civil rights leaders, It's titled, His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. John Meacham, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you back. And before we get to the book, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't commend you for the very moving speech that you gave in support of Joe Biden on the final night of the DNC. As a presidential historian, 
I'm sure that you have a fondness for all of the traditions and showmanship of a good old fashioned political convention, uh, the roar of the crowds, the balloon drop and so on. But of course, due to the pandemic, most of that was missing from the DNC. What was it like to be a part of this very different kind of convention this year? Well, it was very different. Right? I was very, I've never done anything political like that at all. Mm-hmm. And um, they recorded it here in Nashville uh, at, in my little library here. And um, it was an ex- it's an extraordinary time. Uh, the choice has rarely ever been clearer, if ever, uh, about what we face in November. Uh, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. Uh, but I, when they asked, I thought that, not to sound too grand about it, but I thought it was just an act of good citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't ask me to say anything. Uh, I wasn't required to mention Joe Biden. Uh, I wrote that sort of out of my my head and my heart and uh, was happy to share it. Now, you mentioned that this was the first time that you've ever endorsed a presidential candidate. As a general rule, historians tend to stay above the political fray. What went into your decision to speak out? True. You know, at some level, I think that being above the fray is okay as long as the fray is basically producing sane results. Mm-hmm. And if the fray is producing insane results, I don't think you check your citizenship at the door of the library. Um, quite the opposite. Uh my belief in the significance of this election, my view on why it should turn out the way it should, is not based on personal partisan feeling, but on my reading of the American mm. past. And so I felt I, given the opportunity to share an opinion, uh, I shared it. I don't think I said anything there, actually, that I haven't said a thousand times really? uh, <laughs> on television. Uh, but I understand the symbolism of it. I understand that it was surprising to some people. But this is not Obama versus Romney, right? right. I mean, this, this, is, <laughs> this is not like a, huh, I think, yeah. I think I like that tax plan more than that tax plan. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is not that. Yeah. Uh, I don't plan to make a habit of this, mm-hmm. uh, God willing. But one of the things, again, forgive my grandiosity, but you ask, uh, you know, I was born in 1969, and so I was born after the high water mark of what we think of as the Black Freedom Movement of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. I'm a white Southern man. I like to think that I would have been on the right side of history in the 50s and 60s, but I don't know. I think this is a crisis, and at least I know where I was on this one. Well, I know that you have a long-standing relationship with the Bush family, and you spoke at both the funerals of George H.W. and Barbara Bush. This venerated Republican political dynasty has stopped just short of directly attacking Donald Trump, but their silence in 2016 and now in 2020 has said a lot. Did you speak with any of the Bushes before you endorsed Biden? And did you maybe even endorse Biden with their blessing? Just reading between the lines here, is there a tacit endorsement of your endorsement in that? No, there's not. No. Uh, I did not, and no, there's not. Mm-hmm. Um, I value my uh, uh, work with the, the Bushes through the years very much. Uh, I admire their 
service to the country, but I am a free agent. Mm -hmm. You know, even the book I did on President Bush is sometimes said it's authorized and that I was selected by the family. None of that's actually true. Oh, really? Uh, there was no, there were no constraints on that book. Uh, Interesting. President Bush didn't read it till it was published. Um, I don't bother chasing down, you know, the Wikipedia reports on this. But uh, <laughs> no, I wouldn't read uh, that Kenny Bunkford and Dallas were sending a message through me. I think they have. Uh, they have other means to do that. Yeah. And speaking of the Bush family, it's worth noting that George W. Bush not only attended, but spoke at the recent funeral of the subject of your latest book, John Lewis. Now, when he was president, I can remember Bush 43 having his share of political differences with John Lewis, most notably over the war in Afghanistan. So what does it say about either or both of these men that George Bush chose to fly out to Atlanta during a pandemic to eulogize an old political adversary. I think it says a lot of good things about both men. I think it says a lot about John Lewis that he asked. And I think it says a lot about George Bush that he said yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, John Lewis uh, boycotted 43's inaugural in 2001. Uh, they came together a little bit. Uh, this is a less known, well-known story, but um, Laura Bush and President Bush were very supportive of the uh, National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the great hug picture with Michelle uh, is actually, that was taken at uh, the um, opening of that. And David Kennerly's great picture, he just sent me an uncropped version it's cropped in on Michelle and W embracing. If you step back, the uncropped version, the only other person in the picture besides Laura and President Obama is John Lewis. Um, and so I think what it told us is that they believed in a, a, a common enterprise. Mm -hmm. And the enterprise was the American project. And I don't think the incumbent does. Honestly, there's no evidence. Right. I'll tell you, John, I actually did not remember that John Lewis had boycotted President Bush's inauguration, but I certainly know that he refused to come to Trump's inauguration. Yeah. And I remember how Trump criticized John Lewis at the time yeah. and said some pretty not so nice things about him. Take much, uh, right? I have to wonder if in Trump's petty mind, he saw skipping John Lewis's funeral as some kind of tit for tat. Here's what I think. Um, the president had the chance because he's a citizen mm -hmm. to pay his respects to John Robert Lewis in the Capitol rotunda. Right. And he did not. And I noticed that the publication date for your book got bumped up from October to September. Did you feel an urgency to get this book out while Americans are still mourning the loss of John Lewis and his memory still fresh in our minds? I felt a, an urgency that begins with the book itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't start this book to actually write it, write it until March. Really? Uh, when I was on the bridge with, John and a thousand other people at the last, what, what would be his last commemoration of, of the Selma to Montgomery March. And standing there, I just realized the spirit and substance of John Lewis is the antidote to where we are now. Mm. So I always knew I'd write about him someday, but I thought I had about 10 years, right? He was just 80. Um, I'd kept all my notes. I'd always thought about it. We talked about it, actually. 
Uh, and then came the cancer diagnosis. And then came that last March. And then came the age of Trump, right? Well, yes, and I was going to ask you about that. In addition to this race against the clock to complete the book before he succumbed to cancer and while he was still alive to give his firsthand account and fact check you, was there an urgency to release this book ahead of the election? Are you maybe even hoping that the example set by John Lewis might inform voters' decisions come this November? I think that his example is so important to us all the time, but particularly right now. And so I wanted it out before the election. Mm. And, um, and so just having it, ha- trying to get it into more people's hands with as much time to go before we go off and try to vote in the middle of a pandemic, uh, I think is important because yeah. he almost died to give us the right to go do that. What a great message for folks to take with them into the polls this November. Your relationship with John Lewis, as you mentioned, spanned almost three decades. You got to know the man and interview him many times. What was your first encounter with him like? It was a runoff election night in Georgia. It was the last election of 1992. Uh, President Bush had just lost to Bill Clinton. There was a Georgia Senate race, uh, and the Democratic incumbent didn't break 50 and so they were had to have a runoff under Georgia law. I was working for the Chattanooga Times, my hometown newspaper. And um, I used to like to say I was the Atlanta bureau chief, but I was, in fact, the Atlanta bureau. Uh, <laughs> I ran it out of room 216 of the La Quinta Inn on I-85. Uh, and I was down there covering the election and walked into a ballroom. And there was John Lewis and Lily and his wife just standing there. And as you know, I mean, the the currency of power on an election night is not to be seen. Right. It's supposed to be off doing important things. But exactly. Really, you're watching TV, but you know, <laughs> that, that, you like to pretend you're doing something important. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was John and I walked up to him and started talking to him. And it was a conversation that then lasted almost 28 years. And it's interesting that your relationship with John Lewis only began after he was in Congress, and yet his more than three decades in Congress only gets mentioned in the epilogue of your book. This is not an all-encompassing biography of Lewis, but instead you focus on his role in the civil rights movement of the 60s. Why did you think this roughly 10-year period deserved its own book? Because as a leader of the civil rights movement, John Lewis changed the nation. Mm -hmm. As a member of Congress, he was one of 435 people doing the work of the the country. I honestly just wasn't that interested in his congressional career. Yeah. Um, And I wanted to know why was he on that bridge? Why was the great-grandson of a slave, the grandson and son of sharecroppers, willing to die for an American ideal that did not extend to him? That's the question I wanted to answer, not, you know, did he support Pelosi in the conference committee? <laughs> right, right. And, you know, there, there's also something about that moment when a hero becomes a politician. We saw it with Grant and Eisenhower, where they lose a little bit of their luster. Or, or I wonder, do you think that's the case with John Lewis? Do you think that he it's still remained question. above it? It's a great question. It's not luster. It's just they become even more mortal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... What's remarkable about John Lewis is what he did, why, and how he held to that creed. Mm -hmm. 
And in fact, his congressional career is a manifestation of faith in the system. He always insisted on telling the story of the movement, not to aggrandize himself, not to make himself into a hero, but to, I think, inspire and illuminate. Because if ordinary folks could do extraordinary things 70 years ago, 60 years ago, then they certainly can do so now. Mm-hmm. And that's the story we have to tell. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll return with more when we come back in just a moment. Hey folks, technology is constantly changing. And if you have a business like I do, you know all too well that you either change with it or you die. It used to be that a company didn't exist unless it was in the phone book, and then a company didn't exist if it wasn't on the internet. But nowadays, people are spending less time on their computers and more time on their mobile devices, which means it's absolutely essential to have an attractive and easy-to-use mobile app. If you're looking for a product design and development company to help you build your next app, Mutual Mobile is the company for you. Mutual Mobile has designed and built over 600 mobile and web apps powering many Fortune 500 companies and high-growth startups around the world today. Founded over 10 years ago, Mutual Mobile has partnered with Under Armour, Clorox, Alamo Drafthouse, KitchenAid, and more. This company is the best-kept secret of web design and development. Well, at least until now. Now, we all know about the pain of hiring a freelancer or a new employee only to find out months later that it's not a fit, but Mutual Mobile has a refined process so they get it done right the first time. And if you're anything like me, that's precisely what you need. Because what do I know about creating a mobile app or what customers are looking for in that sort of thing? I'm no tech whiz. And who wants to spend all the time and money to build their own team? That's not efficient. But that's exactly why Mutual Mobile is such a lifesaver. Spanning business-to-business, consumer, and industry segments, their teams champion custom digital product management, user experience best practices, visual and interactive design, and integrated technical operational development capabilities. Mutual Mobile's teams work alongside their partners from strategy building to product delivery to create impactful and scalable mobile experiences. If you have design or development needs, schedule a free 30-minute consultation with Mutual Mobile at mutualmobile.link slash kick to get started. That's mutualmobile.link slash kick. Hey folks, I am so excited to talk to you about my new sponsor. I've been recommending chili products to friends for years now. They literally changed my life and now I am a true believer. Did you know that one of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation? Chili makes both the Chili Pad and Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, Chili Sleep Systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm-awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the Chili Pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my Chili Sleep System, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. 
I used to get horrible sleep. I'd wake up several times a night, hot, sweaty, and frustrated, tossing the comforter off. But then my wife got me what is to this day still the very best birthday gift that I've ever received, a chili pad. And I've slept like a baby ever since because it keeps me cool all through the night. It's not uneven like air conditioning. It cools me right in my immediate space where I sleep. And now my sheets actually hold the cool in rather than making me hot at night. Now, if you, on the other hand, like to sleep warmer, Chili has you covered there too. But for me, there's just nothing like getting nice and cozy when it's chilly. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Chili really did change my life for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code KICK. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash KICK with code KICK for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash KICK and offer code KICK. Folks, you've heard me talk before about how much I love my chili pad. I'm so happy that they decided to advertise on the show because I have been sleeping cool with their patented chili pad for a couple of years now, and it has dramatically improved my sleep. One of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation. Chili makes both the chili pad and the Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, chilly sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm awake feature, and a UV light to auto-clean, while the chili pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my chili sleep system, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. Me, I love to sleep nice and cool. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Before I got a chili pad, I used to wake up a few times every night and throw off the comforter because I was hot and had night sweats, and it was just incredibly uncomfortable and frustrating. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, that's what I have air conditioning for. But AC isn't always consistent, and sometimes the temperature in front of the vent is different from the rest of the room. But Chili Pad keeps it at the exact temperature I desire consistently and right in my immediate space. Chili changed how I sleep for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code KICK. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash kick with code KICK for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash kick and offer code KICK. One of the most effective ways to get better sleep is through temperature regulation. Chili makes both the Chili Pad and the Uller, two really cool gadgets that fit over the top of your mattress and use water to control the temperature of your bed. Since water is more thermally efficient than air, Chili sleep systems can help lower your internal temperature to trigger deep, relaxing sleep. 
The Uller is controlled through an app on your phone with smart scheduling, a warm awake feature, and a UV light to auto clean, while the Chili Pad is simply controlled using a remote. Ever since I started using my Chili Sleep System, I've noticed I fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling fully rested. Whether you like to sleep a little warmer or cooler, you can customize the temperature for you and your side of the bed. Chili products offer a temperature range between 55 and 115 degrees Fahrenheit to suit every sleeper. Me, I love to sleep nice and cool. Sometimes I even take my chili pad all the way down to 55 degrees, and I love it. Before I got a chili pad, I used to wake up a few times every night and throw off the comforter because I was hot and had night sweats, and it was just incredibly uncomfortable and frustrating. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Well, that's what I have air conditioning for. But AC isn't always consistent, and sometimes the temperature in front of the vent is different from the rest of the room. But ChiliPad keeps it at the exact temperature I desire consistently and right in my immediate space. Chili changed how I sleep for the better, and it'll do the same for you. And right now, Chili is offering my audience a really great deal. When you go to chilitechnology.com kick, you can get $150 off any sleep system with code kick. That's C-H-I-L-I technology.com slash kick with code kick for $150 off any sleep system. One more time, it's chilitechnology.com slash kick and offer code kick. And like many key figures of the civil rights movement, he didn't set out to be an activist at first. He actually wanted to be a pastor from an early age. And there's this famous story that he loved to tell about a young John Lewis preaching to his family's chickens. Do you remember that story? And what do you think that story reveals about him? Yeah, he was a young young guy on the farm. And his job was, he had about eight brothers and sisters. His job on the farm in Troy, Alabama, Carter's Quarters, a neighborhood near Troy, a section near Troy, was to take care of the family's chickens. And he wanted to be a minister. So he preached to them. He baptized them, sometimes <laughs> disastrously. Apparently that's not a good thing. Uh, he married them. He buried them. Uh, he overcame a stutter by preaching to the chickens. Uh, when his family would take one for dinner, he would not eat. And he said that was his first act of nonviolent protest. Uh, he commented that his colleagues in Congress listened to him about as much as the chickens did. <laughs> uh, it's a sweet image. And what it tells you, I think, is that from the earliest of ages, he wanted to take care of other creatures. Mm -hmm. And I think that's revealing and profound and unusual. And one of the things that you admired most about him, or perhaps more than anything about him, was his intense faith and this unwavering adherence to the example set by Jesus Christ. Is it fair to say that for John Lewis, Christianity and civil rights were one and the same? They were both about properly understood. They were both mm -hmm. about fairness and freedom and love. And civil rights was a manifestation. Human rights was a manifestation of the gospel in action. Mm -hmm. He was not interested in the gospel as theory. He was interested in it as a cogent, tangible instrument to bring about a better world mm -hmm. on this side of paradise. Mm -hmm. He didn't care about doctrinal differences. He didn't care about sectarian differences. 
What he cared about was taking the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and making it real. And I think you even say that his own story follows an almost biblical arc. Now, of course, the Bible already has a book of John, but how would the book of John Lewis read? Well, his first memory was of his mother's garden. So it all begins in a garden. Something (laughs) else begins in a garden. Um, He was, his name was changed when he became a larger agent in the world. Uh, He was Robert or Bob to his family when he got to Nashville to college, when he uh, encountered the nonviolent movement and became part of it, he became John. Uh, His family was not ecstatic about his activism, uh, which is part of the New Testament tradition of, you must leave your father and your mother and your siblings and follow me. He took up his cross he was willing to be jailed and to suffer for the faith. When he lost the uh, chairmanship of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1966, a bitter blow, he lost it to Stokely Carmichael, he went into a kind of biblical exile. Uh, one other thing is, is the college he, came, he went to here in Nashville was on a what they called the Holy Hill. It was on a mountaintop. And it's where he went to receive a commission to go forth. Um, And he always believed in that image in Revelation where a new heaven and a new earth would merge. And I'm going to dork out on you for a second. (laughs) Theologically speaking, the idea of heaven as a separate realm with harps and all that is not biblical. Uh, What is biblical is that heaven means God's space. And the vision in Revelation and the vision that John believed in was that at some day, at some point, the fallen creation of the world would intersect with God's space and the world would be renewed again and made whole and perfect. (laughs) And that would be the new creation. That's the beloved community. That's what he was fighting for. And indeed, you even call John Lewis a saint, Uh, although he doesn't meet two of the critical requirements, I guess. He's not Catholic, and as far as I know, he never performed a miracle. Or or is the miracle just the fact that he survived as many beatings as he did in the 60s and somehow lived to tell about it? Maybe that's the miracle there. Well, you don't have to be Roman Catholic to be a saint. I say from my Anglican Oh, is that true? (laughs) that's, That's one thing. Secondly, did he not perform a miracle? Really? He... He helped undo American apartheid. He didn't start out as an activist. Like I said, he wanted to be a preacher. So what was the evolution of John Lewis's involvement in the civil rights movement? It all happened in in Nashville, really. He had had an intuitive revulsion against the segregated order in Troy as a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, When the Brown decision came down, he was waiting for all his white friends to show up on the school bus, and they didn't. He read about the lynching of Emmett Till. He saw those pictures. They were roughly the same age. That could have been him. Um, He heard Dr. King on the radio preaching about the bus boycott. Uh, Troy was about 50 miles away from Montgomery, so he was aware of that drama. So Authorine Lucy, who was a young black woman who tried to integrate, uh, desegregate the University of Alabama. Uh, He read about that. He had a distant relative who was in Columbus, Georgia, who was an NAACP uh, official who was killed by a white man. So Mm -hmm. he understood 
you know, it was, it was, it was there, right? And that was his reality and the church and the gospel. And then he gets to Nashville and encounters a pastor here named Kelly Miller Smith, who referred him to another minister whom we saw at the funeral at Ebenezer, uh, James Lawson. And Lawson was an apostle of nonviolence. He had taken a Christian background. He was a Methodist minister, is a Methodist minister. Uh, had encountered the tactics of Gandhi on a trip to India and saw that the gospel plus Gandhi was the best path forward to try to take on Jim Crow. And he had come to Nashville after meeting Dr. King. King had said, you're the kind of thing, you're the kind of person we need in the South. And so he came down to Nashville, began to train John Lewis and James Bevel and Bernard Lafayette and Diane Nash and Angeline Butler, some innumerable, incredibly brave young people who then did the sit-ins in Nashville. Then John went on and did the Freedom Rides. He started working on voter registration, uh, ends up with Freedom Summer, and then ends up, of course, on the Pettus Bridge. Yeah, and I want to talk about that moment, Bloody Sunday, uh, the first civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery. What was that day like from John Lewis's perspective? It was overcast, um, middle of the afternoon. Uh, they had left uh, Brown Chapel AME Church. Uh, he was marching as himself. Uh, SNCC, his organization, had declined to take part of this. Part of it was a little bit of tension with Dr. King's group, the SCLC. Um, part of it was they didn't feel that the ground had been prepared uh, for this to go all the way to Montgomery. And one of the hallmarks of SNCC is they always planned everything very carefully. Uh, John said he was going to march as himself. Uh, he and Hosea Williams get at the front of the column. He was prepared to be arrested. Uh, in his backpack, he uh, put in a couple of books, uh, an orange and an apple and a toothbrush uh, so that he'd have that in jail. Uh, was wearing a tan overcoat. They're heading over the Pettus Bridge. They get to the top. It's a very steep bridge, actually, deceptively steep. Um, and they look down and they see the troopers and the posse men horseback. They see the tear gas guns. And they realize that it's not just going to be an arrest situation. It's going to be a, a, an attack. And they kneel and pray. And as they're kneeling and praying, the attack happens. Uh, oh. John's hit, his skull is fractured, um, tear gas, he's throwing up. He's not sure how he got back to Brown Chapel. Uh, they took him into the uh, parsonage next door. A, uh, a fellow civil rights worker named Worth Long uh, had been a medic in the army and recognized the symptoms of a head trauma. Uh, they put John in a uh, tall back chair in the dining room and used it as a stretcher and took him out, got him into an ambulance, went past the troopers who were still on horses, even riding up the steps of the church. They got through. Uh, the FBI interviewed him later that day uh, at Good Samaritan Hospital. It's an amazing story. And the remarkable thing is, 
here was this man getting the living hell beat out of him and almost certain that he was going to die on that bridge. And yet, to quote your book, for Lewis, there was no sense of panic, no gasping, no thrashing, no fear. He was at peace. I think that's where I see what you're talking about when you describe him as an American saint. He's downright beatific in that moment. What was going through his head? That this is what he was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. That this is why God had made him. Wow. And that God in history had put him in that place at that moment. And if it was God's will that the story end there, so be it. And all those years later, when you would sit down with him, did his face and body still bear the physical scars of all that violence? Yeah, he had, he had scars on his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very last time I heard him tell the story, he broke down and cried. And I'd never seen that before. This was last fall. And I think as he got older, it got more, more emotional somehow. I asked him, this is one of the most revealing moments in the whole book. <clears throat> I asked him what he dreamt about. And he said, I dream about the movement. And I said, what well, do you dream about the violence? Do you dream about the beatings? Because that's what I would dream about, I think. And he said, and he paused, he was thinking about it. He said, no. I dream about the marches. I dream about the light and the sound of the feet. I don't dream about the troopers or the taunts. And then sometimes I'll wake up and say, that was so wonderful. Oh, it was just a dream. But we have to do more, make it more than a dream. Mm -hmm. Wow. And when you're a writer, you just get out of the way. Yeah. When somebody says something like that. <laughs> now, when did you last speak with John Lewis before his death? And what was that conversation like? Middle of June. Um, I need to look up the date exactly. Uh, I was fact checking the most picayune things you can imagine, you know, <laughs> whether he was in fact in Illinois in a certain year when the FBI had him there and what happened with his draft status, you know, just biographical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it was after George Floyd. He talked about how he'd cried when he saw the video. Um, and the last thing he said was, keep the faith, keep the faith. And now, the protests were largely peaceful, but on the fringes, there had been some violence and looting. And I get why people are angry out there. I mean, maybe they think that turning the other cheek as he did and waiting for justice hasn't worked out so well for them. Did he judge those who strayed from the path of nonviolence or did he empathize with them? How did he react to that? I don't think judge is the right word. Mm-hmm. I think he he certainly understood. Mm-hmm. And remember, this was not, you know, there was a huge debate about the efficacy of nonviolence in 1960. Right. You know, this was never a universally accepted thing. Uh, you know, the, the complications of black power and self-sufficiency and Malcolm X's evolving view and Stokely Carmichael. And, you know, there was a lot of fascinating and complicated thinking and doing about how do you uh, do this. He, he remained to the end, 
utterly devoted to his path and believed that the work of today was like the work of yesterday, which was to convince people that nonviolence, not simply as a tactic, but as a way of seeing the world was essential. And with the death of John Lewis, I kind of feel like the civil rights generation of the 60s is already going the way of the World War II greatest generation. Uh, after John Lewis, who is left other than, you know, there's Jesse Jackson and Ruby Bridges, but she was just a little girl when all this happened. I mean, yeah. he's really sort of the last of a breed. It really is. You know, C.T. Vivian died the same couple right. of days that John did. Um, uh, Diane Nash is with us. Mm -hmm. uh, Bernard Lafayette is with us um jim lawson uh andy young mm -hmm. uh but you're right you know time and chance happeneth happeneth to us all yeah and in addition to describing john lewis as a saint you refer to him as a modern day founding father I wonder, at a time when we're taking a more critical look at many of America's original founding fathers, do you think there's an even greater appreciation, or there should be a greater appreciation, for those like John Lewis who came later but inspired this country to do a better job of living up to our founding principles? That's exactly why I call him that. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're, you're exactly right. It's that the country was in many ways refounded I mean, there's a, there's a whole debate. Was it 1619? Was it 1776? Was it 1787? Was it 1865? My argument is that the, the demographic polity we have now in many ways can be rooted in 1964-65. That mm -hmm. that was the time in which American apartheid was lifted, at least in part, mm -hmm. in terms of the ballot box. Yeah. And the Immigration Act, which changed the demography of the country, was, was signed in 65. Mm -hmm. And so the country we have at this hour is a direct product of the era in which Lewis was at the height of his power, uh, the height of his influence, I should say. And so, yeah, I think that to look at King and Lewis and others as founders gives us the opportunity, not simply as we have to with our own, with the uh, ancient founders, the 18th century founders, to them, we have to say, well, they articulated something, but mm -hmm. with King and Lewis, we don't have to say, but. Yeah. And what can we learn from John Lewis about the character and values of America? Or maybe it's more aspirational than that. What, what does his life say about the American values that we're still striving to live up to, especially right now? That they can, we can bring the ideal and the real closer into harmony. Mm-hmm. But it requires constant vigilance, constant work, and a determined effort for generosity to trump greed. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, again, the book is called His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. And I also want to plug your terrific podcast, Hope Through History. I've already become a big fan of that. Really enjoyed your 1918 Spanish flu episode. John Meacham, thanks for talking with me. Always happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks again to John Meacham for returning to the podcast. Order his new book, His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold.
Subscribe to John's podcast, Hope Through History, wherever you like to listen, and follow him on Twitter at at jmeacham. Meet V-Thrive, the vitamin shop brand. These high-potency vitamins, supplements, and more are simply clean. That means no magnesium stearate, stearic acid, or titanium dioxide, and zero artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Try their selection of heart-healthy full-spectrum fish oils made from wild-caught, fresh, U.S.-sourced Alaskan pollock. Find these and more at vitaminshop.com forward slash podcast or visit the Vitamin Shop store near you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickAssNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.